Hi there. Thanks for showing up. Just a couple of announcements before I jump into tonight's talk. On July 10th, we're having another in-person gathering. So if you'd like to join, registration uh, on our Dharma Punks with an X NYC dot com page. It's also in the email newsletter. It's also uh, I'll have a link on the Facebook pages. So uh, any of those will drive you to the half day workshop. Please join us if you can. That's on Sunday, July 10th from 2 to 5 p.m. Uh, we also have a retreat that's happening at Garrison Institute in September. Last I checked, we were around 50 people had joined. So if you're up for uh, doing a four-day retreat from September 1 to 5th at Garrison Institute, which is a really beautiful location, easy to get to by the Metro North train that pretty much leaves one only a short walk from the front door. The information is also on the website and at Garrison Institute. And finally, in the 2,500-year-old tradition of the Dharma, I do all my work entirely by donation. So if you'd like to support my work, uh, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC. There's a Patreon page by that name, and there's also a PayPal button on the website. So thanks for that. So tonight... We are talking about trauma memories. So let's dive right in, shall we? By the winter of 1915, one year into World War I, shell shock was already a significant medical problem. It affected countless troops and army doctors especially British and French army doctors, struggled to treat the disorder. The symptoms included tremors, nightmares, extreme fear, fatigue, sensory processing disorders, and of course, immobilization states. Today, we would recognize a lot of these signs as a dysregulation of the nervous system associated with post-traumatic stress the both hypervigilance and dissociative shutdown that people with PTSD very, very often experience. At the time, shell shock was often derided by uh, the army uh, brass higher-ups as cowardice. But two doctors uh, by the names of Myers and McDougall were very influenced by Freud, and they believed that the affected soldiers were experiencing these tremors and nightmares and sensory process disorders because they were managing the memories by repressing them and splitting the memories off from consciousness. So the symptoms such as shaking or freeze was in a way a result of repression. The memories were kept out of 
conscious awareness. And for them, a cure involved retrieving the memories and reintegrating these memories into uh, conscious storytelling. And this method actually helped many, many soldiers eventually recover. It's in many ways a blueprint, if uh, not very complete, but it's one of the early blueprints of how to begin the treatment of trauma and the after, after effects of extremely threatening, emotionally uh, stressful events. Unfortunately, the insights of Myers and McDougall were all but forgotten shortly after World War I, and by the 1970s, Vietnam vets were once again experiencing all the hallmarks, like World War II vets as well, of PTSD. And the psychiatrists and psychologists in VA hospitals had to essentially begin to rediscover what was already known and to develop from the ground up treatments. And we're still some 50 years into this process, uh, developing new techniques and strategies all the time. Certainly, there's probably no better time in our species history to, if you're going to suffer from PTSD, now is better than the past, because there's so many actually promising, useful treatment modalities. If you look at Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, which is a veritable encyclopedia of treatments, um, you'll see just how many different modalities, ranging from uh, EMDR, brain spotting, somatic experiencing, uh, various forms of movement therapy, sensory motor psychotherapy, and so on and so forth. Now, trauma has a lot less to do, it must be emphasized, with the level of actual threat in a given experience than the way we respond to the threat. And the way we respond in turn creates the types of memories that are associated with PTSD and post-traumatic stress. So it's not so much what the degree of danger you're in, it's how you respond to the degree of danger. In fact, um, many, many studies show that individuals who in childhood experience adverse experiences, um, maladaptive caregiving, environmental deficits, and so forth, the constant secretion of glutocorticoids shrank hippocampuses to a degree, reduced frontal prefrontal cortex gray matter. And over time, uh, individuals find it difficult to regulate their emotions. So they already have a predisposition to developing PTSD. In fact, after 9-11, a study showed that with individuals who were standing at the exact or nearly the exact same location, some would develop PTSD, others wouldn't. And one of the most salient factors was whether or not the, the individual in question experienced neglect or um, 
abandonment in childhood. So what is the way we respond to threats that creates PTSD? Well, people who become immobilized, stiffen, contract, and dissociate, which means check out, to realize during a traumatic experience, those who fail to act in an adaptive way, whether that's to scream, to run, to fight, to duck, to grab onto something for safety, those who tend to freeze in either complete frozen terror or collapse in a blackout state are individuals who by far and away tend to be the ones who develop lasting post-traumatic stress disorders and lasting emotional issues after traumas. Why is this? Well, emotional stress disrupts the normal function of the autonomic nervous system. When we're in a terrifying experience, it activates the sympathetic nervous system, and that in turn activates a re uh, 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 axis of the brain known as the HPA, which stands for the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the adrenal glands. And the hypothalamus is what controls our endocrine system. It floods the body and brain with excitatory hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. cortisol. And so our frontal lobes and hippocampal function, which down-modulate our emotional responses, are overwhelmed and essentially are no longer in control. We are now in an awake, but perhaps frozen dreamlike state where we can't move. And our natural survival impulses are cut off. The body contracts at most, but doesn't do anything to survive. And so even when the threat passes, the mind and body remain in this fight, flight, freeze state. And this is important to understand. If your body is still in this state of terror or overwhelm when a threat passes, you will fail to neurocept, which means unconsciously right, realize that you're safe. So even though you're surrounded now by safety cues, the brain still thinks it's the trauma could happen again. It doesn't know that the trauma is open over, over the, the I, sh I should say the threat is over. So the brain never adds a end to the experience. It stays in this lasting hypervigilant uh, protected anticipating danger state. What is left in the aftermath are what we could call trauma memories, which are not stories. This happened, and then this happened, and then the other thing, and then I went el elsewhere and I got out. But simply fragments of images, sounds, body states, these fragments are not stored in the place that normal memories are stored, which is across the brain in regions like the right temporal lobe, the hippocampus, prefrontal cortex, and all that. Trauma memories are only stored really in very often the right amygdala, just one place. And because they're just stored in one place, they become, as we'll see, very resistant to change. It's normal for memories to change. 
um, normal memories are stored across multiple regions of the brain. And so each time we recall a normal memory, like what we had for lunch the other day, or what we did on a trip, or what uh, happened last week during an interaction we had with someone, all these different parts of the brain light up that hold different elements of the memory. And each time we recall the memory, we add new beliefs, new ideas, new feelings, and we change the memories. So what happens with normal memories is each time we recall them, we subtly change them. And that's actually healthy. One wants to believe that our memories are concrete, that they don't change, but actually normal healthy memories that are not trauma memories are constantly fluid. We're always adding new contexts, new sense of distance from the events. And so over time, we have a sense uh, that the experiences are now longer and longer ago in the past. They don't feel like they happened most of the time yesterday. World War II vets were interviewed in 1945 and then in 1990 some 45 years later. And those who didn't experience post-traumatic stress disorder told vastly different stories in 1990 than they told in 1945. Originally, their stories were pretty harrowing. Uh, they told of bombs suddenly going off, uh, individuals who were injured uh, and badly hurt by shrapnel, they talked about states of fear, but because they didn't develop PTSD, their memories were in a narrative. This happened and this happened and this happened and I felt X, Y, and Z. And 45 years later, their stories were almost completely different. Now the stories were framed with, you know, positive recollections of what they were doing in the war, the role they played, the uh, a sense of pride in fighting um, uh, the spread of Nazism through Europe and so on and so forth. So soldiers who didn't develop PTSD, who uh, went on to have healthy careers and adapted back very well to uh, civilian life, their stories were very different than the ones they spoke of in 1945, right after the events. But those with PTSD repeated the exact same images, the same phrases they used, the exact same memory fragments were mentioned, a certain sound, a look on a comrade's face, uh, a look, uh, the sense of a tank approaching, or the exact moment of the day a bomb went off. So they were stuck for 45 years with memory fragments that didn't change at all. This is because trauma memories are stored again in old regions, especially the right amygdala, the PAG. And these are, these are regions that don't form narratives or stories. They just hold the most basic sensory fragments, a sound, a smell, a sight, a, a isolated image. And they use these images to 
prepare us to react to threatening stimuli for the rest of our life. These memory fragments become the triggers that activate panic attacks. These memory fragments become the triggers that activate dissociation and anxiety mounting. And these are the these memories turn into the very triggers, the landmines. If anything reminds us of these triggers, they burst forth into the right hemisphere with a state that I'm back in the trauma. I'm no longer safe. So, for example, in the aftermath of 9-11, 9-11 occurred uh, on a very beautiful day in New York in September, of course. And I remember getting out of the subway and the first thing I noticed was just how warm, how blue and uh, perfect the, with the light breeze the day felt and the exact time of day. It was in the early morning. And then I suddenly saw the World Trade Center looming before me in flames or with smoke billowing out of it exactly to be. And um, in the aftermath of that, for many years after, really beautiful days would activate this sympathetic nervous system response where I'd actually start to get anxious because now those, those images triggered the memory fragments of 9-11 in my unconscious, and it would activate a growing sense of unease and anxiety. So the subcortical regions that hold these memory fragments expect the events to recur. They stay in a heightened state of anticipation. And the regions that hold these memory fragments, specifically the amygdala, get the first glance of all incoming stimuli, very raw stimuli that hasn't been tempered in any way by the frontal lobe. So before we even have a conscious, reasoned adult response to stimuli, the ancient regions of the brain that hold emotionally wounding memory fragments will compare everything that's going on around us with these memory fragments. And if something reminds us of an unpleasant event, it will activate a sense of dread, anxiety, terror, freeze, immobility, and so forth. Um, for example, vets who come back from war settings might, at the sound of a truck backfiring, suddenly duck and cover like they would in a war setting or might freeze. Um, individuals who experience sudden violence or sexual abuse might suddenly freeze when some a friend simply touches them on a shoulder because it hits the exact same region of the body that was grabbed during the original trauma. So when memories are stored as fragments in these ancient regions of the brain, they become essentially what we now call triggers. And these are the epicenter of what activates that sense of terror, dread, overwhelm, that is the hallmark of not only PTSD, but lasting emotional wounds. Now, we it's very often thought that 
in repeating the stories of trauma that that might help. But Bernard Remy and many other psychologists, I'm sure I mispronounced his name, um, have found that the key to regulating and resolving traumas is actively integrating new insights, wider perspectives, finding new details to flesh out these fragments into full memories that can actively now be not only spoken of, but change the way the memories are held so that they're no longer only governed by the amygdala, but now they involve all of the frontal lobes, the temporal lobes, the hippocampus, which downmodulate the fight, flight, freeze response. And it's crucial, as we noted at the beginning, when people go through a terrifying event, they fail to what's called neurocept, unconsciously realize that they are safe. They don't see or experience a moment where they go, ah, oh, I can relax. Their bodies don't, while they, while they return to a normal breathing pattern and while the uh, stress hormones subside, they don't actually see signs that let them know that the experience is over. So it's crucial to add an ending to these experiencing these experiences, not leave them open-ended, because if they are open-ended, they'll feel like they're still happening. So we need to add a sense of when the experience was over. So the context in which we process events, uh, emotionally stressful events is very important. The good news is we can have absolutely terrible experiences in life, but if we connect with individuals who know how to help us restore a sense of physical safety by reconnecting with our bodies in a way that allow the blocked survival impulses to be released and also train our nervous systems to be better regulated, then we can also in that connection, we can make sense of the experience and turn the trauma into a story that can be integrated into the rest of our life. But if, the, if we're neglected, misunderstood, judged, if we feel ashamed of what's happened to us, very often uh, victims of uh, sex crimes, uh, abuse are too ashamed and they can't find the safety to reframe the experience. They can never reconnect safely with their own bodies. They can never regulate their own autonomic nervous systems. Their minds remain stuck living in the anticipation that the threat might occur or the terror might occur again and again and again. So when we're working with the aftermath of a extremely disturbing, overwhelming, uh, event, a traumatic loss, uh, or an experience that is associated with uh, violence or vulnerability, it's important to develop safety resources. This can be one, connecting with an individual who allows us to just be with our experience without 
any undue pressure. Um, in a secure environment where there's not too many loud sounds or too much stimuli so that our nervous systems begin to downregulate. And we might, uh, for instance, if we're in a trauma-informed therapy, they, the therapist would generally introduce um, sensations and images that help further regulate our nervous systems, keep us in homeostasis or the window of tolerance, rather than at first um, going into the sympathetic arousal state. But then eventually also they'll extend the ability to be in the sympathetic arousal state without crashing into dissociation. So what they'll do is they'll first introduce images where an individual feels safe. They'll have the individual begin to move and reconnect with their bodies in ways that feel fluid. So they're not remaining in this contracted cutoff state where any emotion has to be, feels too much to hold and then freeze and collapse states uh, occur. Very often they'll use tactile sensations. People might use external resources like an image of the Buddha or another spiritual figure and keep it in the environment. Sometimes therapists will have people hold tactile sensations, blankets or uh, objects that create a physical sense of safety. Now, once after a few sessions, uh, the, the therapist or the counselor has developed these resources that help us regulate our nervous system so that it doesn't become too triggered. Um, what we might do is find a resonant image that is associated with the emotionally stressful event or even the traumatic event but in it while the person holds this image the individual might encourage the patient uh, the therapist might encourage the patient to look around to find new uh resources in that image safety that they didn't originally spot escape routes we might uh look at ways that we could uh run to or people in the environment that we could call out to so what the therapist might do is flesh out this memory shard or memory fragment so that it now has a greater sense of possibility and safety to it and in the meantime while the person's nervous system is now activated because they're holding an image of a very uh, unpleasant event. The therapist is also training the individual's nervous system, sympathetic nervous system, to stay with this state, but not becoming so overactivated that it results in a freeze or a mobilization. So the therapist will say, okay, I want you to look around, move your head. I want you to feel your feet. I want you to breathe slower. I want you to move your hands in a way that can push away 
the image of someone who's attacking you, or I want you to feel the energy in your legs that could run away. So the therapist is, is in essence, um, again, fleshing out these memory fragments into fuller narratives involving many more regions of the brain. And we're training our nervous systems not to become overwhelmed and shut down. Um, in energizing our bodies, we become more and more confident that we could survive a threat if it occurs. Um, and we, if we're still in a, a post-traumatic uh, state, our bodies will be stuck in those rigid contracted states. And when our bodies are stuck like that, even the smallest emotion can be overwhelming because there's not enough of a, um, there's not enough uh, space in the body for the emotion to be fully felt, to be processed. If we relax the body, if we reconnect and make it fluid, then what happens is now the emotions can arise and pass without activating a free state, a terror state, a shutdown state. So it's crucial to reconnect with the body. And this is why bottom-up body-based therapies, especially somatic experiencing, uh, sensory motor uh, psychotherapies uh, and movement therapies are so, so vital and helpful when it comes to um, uh, addressing trauma. And certainly, Kathy uh, Dharmapunks is very, very eloquent in talking about how SE is a uh, such a useful and therapeutically helpful technique for trauma. So um, then lastly, we might complete the stories by asking an individual to note when they finally knew they were safe. People who are stuck in post-traumatic states of shock never complete the stories. There's no end. There might be a middle of the trauma, which is filled with fragmentary images of a car about to crash, uh, a look on the other driver's face, the sound of screeching tires, the sound of a car horn blaring, uh, headlights. But all these memory fragments are not completed with an image of, and then I was okay, walking around, I stopped, I saw that the person with me was safe, we hugged each other, we stopped and breathed, we saw that the other driver was safe. So there's a, if we don't have PTSD, we have memories that create an ending to the story. But people with PTSD don't have that ending. They don't their brains never fully process that the experience was over. So it's vital when we're working with um, post-traumatic events to ask the individual, when did you know you were safe? What did you see? What was there? How did you feel in your body when you started to feel safe? And we get them to ingrain this image of safety in our minds, 
so that the story now has much more to it than just the fragmented threat memories. Uh, complex PTSD, unlike normal or just PTSD, complex PTSD is associated with many, many environmental failures in childhood where the child feels neglected, shamed, not cared for, uh, criticized, or overwhelmed or scared of the caregiver. And so it's not a single event, but a myriad of events. And it's beneficial to ingrain in the mind that ending that we talked about, that sense of this is when I was safe. Because especially with complex PTSD, most individuals only gradually, slowly get out of the vulnerability with a parent or both parents that were unsuitable for the task and or other caregivers in the environment. And so they never really truly informed their, the regions of the brainstem, the periaqueductal gray, the basal lateral amygdala and so forth. These subcortical regions were never truly informed the ongoing pattern of emotional abandonments uh, has passed, is over. So we really want to start ingraining all of the times where we were now in environments where those traumatic events or patterns of abandonments were no longer going to occur. So in that way, whereas we're not working with the individual experiences, and to be certain, many, many of the individual experiences associated with complex PTSD happen before the formation of narrative memories that start with around the age of um, five, four or five, when the left hemispheres, Broca and Wernicke's regions go online. But what we want to do is at least burn in and end a story of, I know that all these things happen because I'm constantly feeling activated because I don't very often feel safe in certain interpersonal situations. Some people trigger me. Sometimes I go into an overwhelmed uh, state of, of diso dissociation, but I'm now going to burn into the brain, a time where those formative events were no longer happening. And then what we're also going to do is in every time where we're triggered, we're going to bring in awareness of our bodies and our, our we're going to practice in situations where we notice we get triggered in our meditation we're going to, where it feels safer, where we're not actually with the individual triggers us, we're going to recreate that situation, but we're going to keep that fluidness in the body, the muscles activating in our legs and our arms. We're going to look for ways out. We're going to, after each triggering experience, we're going to rewrite it 
and rewrite it in a way where we feel more resourced and safer. We now have far more fuller narratives that are regulated by far more regions of the brain. The amygdala is far less likely to activate a, a terror or shut down or freeze or immobilize state. And uh, eventually our nervous systems become capable of holding a far greater variety of emotions without just derealizing, depersonalizing, which means essentially checking out, go, disappearing into this nether region where we no longer feel like we're in our bodies. So what we're going to be doing in our meditation is we're going to actually, not with a trauma, but with a just an emotionally challenging event, but not a trauma. We're not going to do trauma processing alone. Uh, but what we're going to do is just practice some of these tools uh, to help us learn to resolve and essentially regulate and get a firmer uh, integration of a painful experience so that it no longer feels so haunting. So thanks for listening. I hope something in that was uh, of interest. And if not, there'll be a talk on something else next week. But um, for now, find a really super comfortable seated position. closing the eyes, or if you want, orienting your attention to some image, I should say, some uh, visual cue in your environment that's associated with safety and ease. That could be a plant or a window or uh, a photograph of something soothing. If you're going to close your eyes, try to first locate the most soothing sensation in your body. While you do that, we're going to also slow down the breath by taking slightly fuller deeper in-breaths, and we're going to lengthen the exhalation so that there's slightly more room between each inhalation. We're not going to push out the air when we breathe out. We're just going to allow the air to slowly be released.
if there's soothing sounds around you, sounds of water or a breeze, or even sometimes just cars passing that without honking can be even soothing. If there's rain where you are, that's soothing. Any rather regular auditory sensation that can be brought in to also soothe, allow that into awareness. And then take a moment to just find your shoulders and just drop them away from your ears. Like you're putting down two heavy suitcases after you've been traveling and you're just gonna put them down so that you can bring all the traveling to an end and finally arrive at your destination, which is the present moment right here. And open up the chest. We can do this by slightly pulling back the shoulders when they're dropped so that the chest opens up. And then bring awareness down to the belly and really soften the belly, which means make it not frozen or tight, but allow the belly to move out with the inhalation and then to be relaxed with the exhalation. So a softened belly can move as we breathe. A contracted belly kind of stays frozen. If yours wants to stay frozen, just try to exaggerate push out the belly as you breathe in and then pull it in slightly as you breathe out so that you can begin to loosen this contracted state and then find the muscles in your set bones and just allow them to release. So you sink, <clears throat> if you're sitting upright in a chair, you sink further into the chair and then release any of the muscles in the thighs and calves so that we are allowing the chair or the ground to fully support us. We're not trying to hold ourselves up. We're just letting balance keep us upright if we're in a chair. If you're lying down or on a couch, just release all of the muscles that make contact with the surface that's supporting you. We wanna keep the breath really slow. And we now want to enter into our mind the image of a place that we feel really safe a refuge for us, could be 
a place we like to go to by the water or in the country or somewhere out in nature or even one's bedroom or living room or a place where we feel truly relaxed and secure. We'll call this a resource or refuge associated with the place. And then we're going to bring to mind someone that we associate with some degree of calmness and reassurance. Someone that when we connect with, we feel that we can speak without being interrupted, judged, shamed, criticized. Someone who evokes a sense of understanding. If it's someone you know, that's great. But if you can't bring anyone to mind, just visualize any figure, real or imagined. Could be an inner visual associated with the Buddha or... Another figure, some people might use a Mr. Rogers or a, a soothing maternal figure. And we'll call this a refuge associated with a person or a persona. And just know what these images are that we can bring to mind that can help create a sense of greater ease. And so for a while before we do the practice, we're just going to sit and we're going to practice one keeping our breaths really slow, holding in mind resources of safety, relaxing different parts of the body that might habitually clench, especially muscles in the back, shoulders and abdomen. We'll practice these long, very soothing breaths. And if a thought intervenes and pulls us away into a little movie in the mind, uh, story about the past or the future or something that's not happening right here and now. Just lost in inner chatter, just, that's okay. That's what the mind does. Just practice bringing it back to the body, which is the portal back to the present. 
and try to make the body as comfortable, soothing, relaxing as you can. And if you do feel your mind needs to abandon the present, just focus on building up these resources of safety cues, an image of a safe person or a safe place.
So at this point, I'm going to lead the meditation where we explore some of the themes from tonight's talk. But if you're happy and feel best served by staying in just the relaxed state that we've worked towards, that's fine. You can even turn off the sound for the next five minutes if you'd like. To move on to the practice, bring to mind a not traumatic, which means you didn't feel that your life was endangered or on the threshold of being separated from someone who's vital. Uh, or fully in a state of being overwhelmed, but just a unpleasant, perhaps interpersonal event that keeps on replaying in your mind as maybe just an incomplete set of images that pop back into mind, somebody's facial expression, someone's uh, lingering presence, a sense of being cornered or whatever. So see if any experience Meets the, meets the criteria of being something that does now and then pop into your mind, but isn't associated with complete terror or dissociation. Sometimes we have to search our memory. Sometimes something will just, without any effort, just pop into mind. Once you find the image or the event, see if there's a specific image or sensory experience that prominently stands out as representative of this event. And if you can bring it to mind, it probably is an image along with a feeling that's already repeated itself. So it shouldn't be that hard for it to be recalled if, if it's still active. And while you do this, I want you to just feel your feet on the ground or just squinch and release the muscles in your feet so that you feel your feet 
you're grounded while you're holding this unpleasant memory in your mind. And I want you to keep from going off into uh, a disconnected state by feeling your feet. You might even feel your hands on your legs. You might want to reconnect with the breath and really make sure the exhalations are very complete that we don't start any form of shallow breathing. And while you're in this image, I want you to see if you could imagine, or even actually with your head, look to the left and to the right in this memory image and see if you can fill in the details with other people or spaces you could move to, places you could escape to, ways out of the encounter. If the experience is too hot, bring in some of the image of your refuge, the person or the place. But if you still feel fully present and your breath isn't too heightened or modified, just keep filling in details, things that maybe you missed, places that or doors or windows or uh, ways we could leave. Feel the muscles in your legs, relax your body, keep it fluid so that we're not locking up. And any emotion we might feel has a lot of room in the body to arise and pass. We're not allowing the body to contract. We're keeping it soft. And uh, finally, I'd like you to now bring to mind an image of a time when you were true, when you were truly saved. Maybe at the time you didn't realize that you were saved, that the person was gone, or that you were now it wasn't going to happen anymore, that you had removed yourself from the interpersonal event. I want you to find an image shortly after this experience, a place you might have been, a person you might have seen, 
where you were truly now no longer vulnerable or exposed. And I want you to hold this image in your mind and truly, if you want, you can even put a hand to your heart center or just feel in your body what it's like to be safe, to relax, to breathe out, to uh, let out that exhalation of uh, that's done with. And really associate that image of the ending with that physical state of I'm out of there, I'm safe now. We want to burn in this image of this is where the experienced end ended so that even the deepest, oldest regions of the midbrain will now hold this image associated with safety. So really burn it in. Imagine the person talking to you let you knew everything was going to be okay, or the, the person that you connected with. all the time making sure that our body is relaxed, our breathing is slow and fluid. There's lots of room in the body for anything we need to feel. And when you're ready, just let go of all of the images associated with the, this event. And when you open your eyes, just allow your eyes to connect with the safest, most secure cue in your environment that lets you know that you're now protected, 